Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I have turned much of my focus to mental health and well-being because I believe this is the foundation on which we build everything else. Like our mental health is like the fuel that allows us to show up at work for our families and our communities and our schools. If our mental health is not good, it's hard to, to really thrive in the rest of our lives. And rebuilding that foundation is really what I want to dedicate my time and effort to. Dr. Vivek Murthy is a physician. He's a vice admiral and the current Surgeon General of the United States. He was the 19th Surgeon General, and now he is, again, a Surgeon General, the 21st. And he has served under Presidents Obama, Trump, and Biden. We've all heard about the Surgeon General, the warning labels on alcohol, for example. But what does the nation's top doctor actually do? How does one become Surgeon General, and what are his most pressing concerns? Dr. Murthy joins me today to discuss these topics and others. And I must tell you, I really didn't know that you are part of the armed forces of the United States. Yeah, so many people don't realize uh, that the Surgeon General is actually the head of one of our eight uniformed services in the U.S. government. And the service that I have the privilege of leading is called the U.S. Public Health Service. Right. And we have about 6,000 nurses and doctors and pharmacists and physical therapists all over the country. We deploy them near times of emergency, whether hurricanes and tornadoes. Uh, and other natural disasters to help support local health care and public health. So you must have been very busy with all the fires uh, in not only Hawaii, but on the West Coast and in yes. uh, the Northeast. You've been very, very busy. And you are a young man. <laughs> uh, Vivek is how old? I'm 46 now. 46 years old and uh, very handsome, by the way, and oh, dressed in his in his beautiful uniform. <laughs> uh, I hear you even walk in the morning in your uniform. Well, yeah, I, I walk to work miles? as often as I can. How many miles do you walk to work? Oh, it's not far. It's like a, a little over a mile, oh, so not okay. far at all. But you look very dapper and <laughs> very you. nice. And Dr. Murthy's come with uh, some of his colleagues. Uh, what do they do? Oh, my gosh. I have an incredibly uh, talented team, and I've been blessed to have folks who help with communications, with our engagements with outside organizations, 
They also help with the design of our products and our website uh, and with running our operation, which is, while it's small and nimble, we operate in a fairly large bureaucracy of the United States government. And so uh, the team helps me navigate all of that as we build out our you know, our, our initiatives on mental health and in other areas and as we design projects and collaborations. The public health service, which, which I run, is much smaller. It's 6,000 uh, officers who function across medical and health disciplines. Yeah, I mean, it's... And do you do you actually tell people where to go? So, I mean, it's, it's it must be very complicated. Well, it is complicated, but How it's, many people did you have to send to Hawaii? So we sell several Maui. dozen people uh, yeah. to, to Hawaii uh, to help specifically actually with the mental health uh, challenges there. Because as you know, when natural disasters happen, a lot of times we rightly focus on the immediate destruction. But the mental health challenges, they last for a long time. Even after the last house is rebuilt, last piece of debris is cleaned up, people will struggle. And in fact, sometimes those mental health challenges increase after all the public attention has gone, gone away. People are left dwelling. Just to clarify for the audience, what are the different divisions of the United States Armed Forces? There are eight? So there are eight, I would say, of the uniformed services. Some of them are armed and some are not. Uh, so the United States Public Health uh, Service, for example, this is a uniformed service that's focused on health. It's the only one that's uh, solely focused on advancing the health of the country. Many people are familiar with the Army and the Navy and the Coast Guard, with Space Force, with other services. Air Force. Um, yes, Air Force as well. And there's NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So you, you put all of them together in different ways they serve to help protect our country, whether it's from outside threats or from health uh, challenges we may face or other uh, situations. One of your biggest initiatives, and I know what you what you uh, really want, want to talk about, and I do too, because I have Godchild who in England who started a company called Hello Tomo. Do you mm. know about that? No, I don't. Oh, he's. Uh, it's all about exactly your initiative, which is combating the epidemic of loneliness and mm. isolation that is growing in all over the world, actually, right now. So and I'm very happy to talk to you about what you are doing to help combat this loneliness and this sense of isolation that's occurring. What is this a direct result of, basically? Well, I think to really understand that, we have to recognize that loneliness has been building for years. It's not something that happened overnight. The mm. pandemic made it worse, but it was a crisis even before the pandemic, a silent crisis, if you will. And there's several things that have been happening over the last several decades that have led to that. So one is that over the last half century, our participation in the organizations that used to bring us together, like recreational leagues, service organizations, faith organizations, has steadily declined. The other thing that's happened is that as we've come to use technology more, which has been really wonderful and efficiency producing, it's also made it unnecessary for us to see people as much. So for example, I don't need to go to the grocery store or to a retail store to buy things. I can just buy things online and that can save me some time. One of the consequences we've realized is we have less interaction with one another. We also move around a lot more. We change jobs. We leave you know, home for school. Those are communities we leave behind. Again, some benefits there, but there's a cost. And finally, I, I think that the phenomenon of social media for many people has actually led to an antisocial effect which is that many of them have found that they're substituting what used to be in-person connections for online connections where they're less known, they have less of a strong, you know, sort of, I, I think, personal connection with other people. And that has left many people lonelier and more isolated than before. The, the thing that concerns me most, Martha, is when you look across the age spectrum at who's most affected, uh, we find that one in two adults are living with measurable levels of loneliness in America. 
but the numbers are even greater among young people. And depending on the study you look at, somewhere between 70 to 75% of young people say that they are in fact struggling with loneliness. Yeah, it makes me very unhappy to hear that. Hmm. I remember when I was just out of college, starting a a good job Mm -hmm. uh, on Wall Street, I would get about 100 phone calls a day from different people. And I really liked that because I got to talk to people in a job, mm-hmm. but also at home. And that that verbal communication was so important to me. Mm-hmm. Now, if I count if I count 10 phone calls a day, mm. that's a lot. Mm. And I hate it. And my colleagues here at the office, they text from one desk to another. Huh. Yeah. That's what they do. They text. And that's what's happening. Everywhere. I mean, my granddaughter texts me. Mm-hmm. Instead of picking up the phone, I always write, please call me. <laughs> I, get a, I get a text. Busy right now. I'll text you later. Mm. You know, and she's 12. Yeah. And I know that she's, I know she's not with anybody, but she's gotten into this bad, I think it's a horrible habit, mm. by the way, because I might be very old fashioned, but text, how much do you text versus call? Well, so I'll tell you, I've changed in the last couple of years, uh, in part because of a lot of this work we've been doing on loneliness. I used to primarily uh, send people texts. I wasn't leaving people voicemails either. I was, if I had to call them, I would. If I couldn't reach them, I would just text them or email them. But I had this friend actually who, who, whenever we used to play phone tag and he couldn't reach me, he would actually leave me a long voicemail. And I actually realized I really enjoyed just hearing his voice. And I also started to pick up the phone more often when people called, even if I was busy, because I would just say, hey, can I call you back? Like, I'm about to walk into a meeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even that five seconds or 10 seconds of hearing their voice made a difference. Well, not only does it help you, it Mm -hmm. also, I mean, help them to get a voice, but you know that you're going to call back. You're making a a note to yourself that you're going to actually correspond with that person. That's right. In in words. And the thing is that there's a whole evolutionary scientific basis to the fact that you and I feel better with phone calls, which is that like, you know, thousands of years ago when we were, as we were evolving, we came to not just process the words that somebody was saying, but their facial expression, the tone of their voice, their body language. Yeah. All of that went into us understanding yeah. who they were, our connection. And, and now you don't see people. You just don't see them. Yeah. You're definitely mm-hmm. onto a major problem mm-hmm. here. And I congratulate you on doing that because I think people have to know this. As, and as you say, especially children. Hmm. I mean, 11 and 12, the, the two grandchildren that I care most about, luckily they have school. Luckily they have a school uh-huh. to go to. During COVID, uh, the girl did not like being alone. Mm-hmm. She wanted to see her friends. The boy, I'm so happy, he said, I can get all my homework done by 8.30 in the morning and then I can do whatever I want to do, which yeah. is kick a soccer ball and read. And uh, he's he's okay with that, uh-huh. but she's not, and yeah. she needs that that social life, that that correspondence with others in physical ways. You know, the truth is, every kid needs that at some level. Some may need more than others, but they all need it. And I think that's one of the reasons the pandemic was so tough for them. But it's also one of the reasons I worry, Martha, that even when many kids are in school today, they are on their phones and they're not actually interacting as much with each other. I've had so many young people when I do roundtables around the country tell me. Hey, I want to talk to other people, but at lunchtime, everyone's on their phone. And in meeting classes, they're on their phones. But why do schools allow phones? I think, I think, well. During class, they shouldn't allow them. So I I do believe that there need to be stronger limitations and restrictions on phones in school. I think many schools uh, have 
not necessarily known what the right policies are. Some of them have policies, but they're not sure how to enforce them. I think many teachers rightly, uh, I think, have felt like, hey, I don't want to be the enforcer on top of everything else I'm doing. So then this question of how to enforce it kind of comes to play. But I think that these are issues that we have to find solutions to because one of the one of the challenges is that w- with having your cell phone on you all the time is not only that you don't connect with other people, but it's also that it impairs your attention and in, in a learning environment. And so I think about a few key areas that we need to protect in our lives from our phones and technology. One of them is our sleep. And too often our phones invade our bedrooms and they're taking stealing hours away from sleep. The second is in-person interaction where they often distract us and, and impair and I think weaken our connections with others. So when you're talking to friends, when you're having dinner and catching up with family, do that without your phones. The third is where we learn. And that's where I think keeping schools in particular to be an area where the use of technology is limited, specifically your phones, is important. And the final area is actually physical activity. You know, one of the, the consequences of spending three and a half hours a day on your devices, which is the average amount that adolescents spend each day. <laughs> is that is crazy? That yeah. yeah, but there's certain things you're not doing. And one of those, uh, you know, I worry is the, the cost comes from your time to be physically active. These are, as I think of it, pillars for health and well-being. Now, can you have an effect on this? <clears throat> can you can you impose some rules or, or encourage schools to clamp down on the use of phones and maybe put your phone in a, in a cubby hole in the morning and you'll get uh-huh. it back in the afternoon? Yeah, so it's a great question. So we, while most of the rules around schools are made locally in the United States by, by local school districts, one thing our office can do and what we have done is to push forward uh, strong recommendations to schools of what they, they can do. And already since we issued our advisory on social media and youth mental health in May of this year, we've actually seen more schools taking actions. I was actually just at one school in Indiana, for example, that they told me when I went to visit that after our advisory came out, they they finally put in strong rules around not using your phone during schools. And what they said, it's very interesting. They found that the volume in, it has gone up in a good way. They hear more kids talking to each other in school. The second thing they've noticed is they see more kids playing with one another, playing Jenga, they mentioned, than other games with one another. This is what childhood should be about. It should be about playing, about connecting with one another, about discovering Definitely. through our relationships. And I think to do that, we need to protect some of our time without our devices in school. Well, you were the 19th U.S. Surgeon General and now the 21st (laughs) Surgeon General. Your role has, how did it change from 19th to 21st? COVID was happening when I took uh, office the second time around. It was in March of 2021. We were about a year into the COVID pandemic. The other thing that was different and this in a a saddening way is that the mental health crisis in our country was worse the polarization that we were experiencing in division was worse uh, than even it was uh, when I was Surgeon General the first time. So all of this was deeply worrisome to me. And it was one of the reasons why, even though I did a lot of work on COVID in the beginning, I have turned much of my focus to mental health and well-being because I believe this is the foundation on which we build everything else. Like our mental health is like the fuel that allows us to show up at work for our families and our communities in our schools. Our mental health is not good. It's hard to to really thrive in the rest of our lives. And rebuilding that foundation is really what I want to dedicate my time and effort to. What is your education? What enabled you to get a job as Surgeon General of the United States? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a funny thing, Martha, is that I actually never thought I would serve in this role. I never aspired to, but I also actually never thought I would work in government. Yeah, well, had, that, you, ever, had you ever, you hadn't thought about it, right? Is that? I had not, no. I was happily building a, a life outside of government. I was, at the time I was asked to serve in this role, I was working 
Uh, as a doctor, I was teaching medical students and residents. I was building a technology company, oh. actually, at the time, because I was very interested in how technology could be used to advance research and health. And I was starting to get involved in doing some work uh, around advocacy for a better healthcare system, because I had been working as a doctor for enough years at that point that I realized there were just fundamental things that were broken about our system that weren't serving patients well. And I, and I wanted to, to be a voice for correcting those and for organizing other doctors to use their voice to do the same. So that's what I was doing beforehand. Uh, my birthday, actually, in 2013, received this call out of the blue from a 202 area code number. And I knew enough to know that 202 was Washington, D.C., um, but I didn't know which number it was. And to, to compound things, I had actually just come off of a red-eye flight from uh, L.A. I was living in Boston at the time. I just wanted to go to bed, honestly. <laughs> and my hands were full of my dry cleaning that I just picked up at the dry cleaners. But this phone, the phone rings. And I almost didn't pick it up, and that ended up being a call from the White House asking me <laughs> if I wanted to be considered for the position of Surgeon General. And I'll tell you, Martha, at that time, that even though I didn't think uh, that government was really a place for me, what I did realize was there was something actually very unusual about this job, which is that it was an independent job where you are, even though you're appointed by a president, your job is not to execute the agenda of a president or a political party or anyone else, your agenda is devised by you based on science and the public interest. And so to me, I like that independence. I like the idea of being able to focus on the issues that I thought were most important to the public. Uh, and in the end of the day, I'm, I'm grateful that I was the commander-in-chief your commander? Uh, ultimately, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he is. Yeah. But yeah. he doesn't set your agenda. Uh, he does not. And, and one thing I'm grateful for is that, and this was true, not just for President Biden, but it was true with President Obama as well, is both of them understood the role well enough and had enough respect for um, the sacred nature of the role and also for the importance of science as a driver for what the Surgeon General's agenda is, that they never came to me and said, you need to do this, or you should focus on this because this is my agenda. They always gave me the, the opportunity and freedom uh, to identify what I thought was most important for the country and to focus on that, and I'm grateful for that. So who was the 20th? So the 20th Surgeon General was Jerome Adams, who was appointed by President Trump to be Surgeon General. He served uh, in particular during that first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. And he used to be the uh, health commissioner in the state of Indiana uh, prior to serving as Surgeon General. He worked incredibly hard, traveled all over the country during COVID, even before there was a vaccine available. You know, So he was putting himself at risk, but he did it because it was his job and he wanted to serve. I was Surgeon General with Ebola and with yeah. the Zika virus yeah, as well. Right. Sure. There's a lot of times where things are changing rapidly and you're figuring things out. And as you do that, sometimes your recommendations change. So there were times in the first year of the pandemic in the Trump administration with uh, Dr. Adams uh, where they were rapidly evaluating uh, new data and sometimes their, their recommendations were changing. I think sometimes people would look at that and say, well, if you said do something on day one and then day 30, you're saying do something different, that must mean that you don't know what you're doing. But that's actually the nature of what you want the scientific discovery process to be with. Um, a, things happen so fast. They happen really fast, oh, yeah. yeah. And this was, with COVID in particular, it was a time where we were not only trying to learn from what was happening in the U.S., but we were gathering data from all around the world. Right? I was doing a sculpture at the time. I'm, really? I'm not a sculptress, but I was, you know, this is this is stay at home. Uh -huh. This is that first hundred days I started a sculpture, which was in the shape of a giant egg. And all of my colored eggs mm. from my chickens were blown out and being placed on this giant sculpture. And I didn't know how many eggs it would take to cover this giant egg. But on the eggs, I was writing 
when things happen during COVID, mm. you know, when, when somebody famous died or when somebody contracted COVID or when some new vaccine was being promoted. Mm. And so I wrote these all down on these eggs and it was just incredible. The change of things happening, as you say, so yeah. fast. Yeah. And uh, when I look back on those, on those eggs now, I, it's the history of COVID. Yeah. And the dates, I put dates on them and I would, people would die and the number of people hospitalized. Oh my gosh. It was the, the most awful time in, in recent, well, recent mm -hmm. history, that, that kind of national awful time. Yeah. But, um, but I can, I can understand. I mean, your job was so difficult and Dr. Adams job, of course, is so, it was so difficult because he had believers and disbelievers yeah. around him at That's all right. times. So. How, Martha, how did you manage during that? first year of COVID. I know it was a we very isolating year so for people. We were so productive mm. because I was able, I was living on my farm, so I could, uh -huh. I didn't have to go to the store. I could just eat out of the garden uh -huh. and eat from the chickens, you know, all the eggs and, you know. Uh -huh. and, and where was the farm? In Bedford, New York. So in close New York. to New okay. York. Gotcha. And I built, one of the, I had an extra house on the property. We turned that into a TV studio. Huh. And so we did three television shows, big shows, uh, 13 episodes each show that year. Wow. And we were tested every day. We had the mm -hmm. tester at the gate for people to come in. They had to be tested and wait for the test to come back. Mm. We were all very careful. And we really were extremely productive. Mm. And we didn't come to New York because this office was closed. It was a miserable time. Mm. But in the first 100 days, I kept five people at my house. And I cooked 100 different meals. Oh and we, re we recorded everything. It was kind of interesting huh. and they and everybody had a good time and i allowed every night i have a wine cellar but mm -hmm. i don't i'm not a serious wine collector but i had some pretty good wine cellar <laughs> I, I, everyone was allowed to choose a different wine every ah. every night uh one wine and we brought it up and we looked it up on online what some one night it was a two thousand dollar bottle one <laughs> night it was a 1999 bottle of wine you know and and everyone we laughed so much and we played cards we were not isolated at all because we had five of us living there we actually had fun yeah but we knew how serious this all was and and we mm. could we could do this and i constant conversations with my daughter with the kids in the city who were who were much more isolated mm -hmm because of where they were. But it was it was an hmm. interesting time, but we were very productive. And that's a bond the five of you always yeah, have yeah. going through that. Time. And not only that, there was no chance to, to get depressed, no chance to get feel isolated in mm -hmm. any way, because we, we couldn't. But so few people had that opportunity. I mean, people who, a family of three in New York stuck in an apartment with a little mm -hmm. baby or something, it's horrible. Yeah, I think it was incredibly hard for yeah. many families. And I think for people who had to go to work in settings where there may not have been a lot of precautions Oh, yes, taken, well, public service workers. Right, and many of them were putting their, felt like they were putting their lives at risk, and many oh, yeah. cases there were, but they yeah. had to come back and take care of their families. Yeah. And it was a very hard time for But people. it also got me really to be a believer in the vaccines and mm -hmm. to take care and you know, just do, do the stuff that you had to do. Yeah. And believe in science, mm -hmm. right? And in many ways, I think what we saw even despite all the challenges on the way, is we, we saw a vaccine developed in a remarkably short period of time with the right safety checks taken you know, to make sure it was okay for the population. Did your office have a lot to do with that? So, well, so the, the, the vaccine was developed during the last year of the Trump administration. So this was before I came back yeah. uh, to serve as, as Surgeon General the second time. But I, I do think it's important to credit them for the, the work they did in, uh, in getting the vaccine developed so quickly. Uh, the Biden administration then took that baton and then really ran a historic vaccination campaign around the country that vaccinated more people in a shorter amount of time than 
I believe, any other vaccination campaign that we've had. To me, that was a great example of how two administrations could actually do a good job, you know, in in concert uh, with with one another, Uh, even though they were subsequent, obviously, but they both had an important piece of the puzzle uh, that they helped put together to get us through COVID. Was it hard to transition uh, from, what, what did you do in between? Yeah, so in between, I was actually doing a portfolio of things. I was I spent some time writing a book, uh, ironically, on loneliness and isolation. I didn't know the pandemic was coming, but it came out in the first month of the pandemic. I was also... Last night, I was talking to a biochemist. Yeah. I mentioned that I was going to be speaking to you. He said, oh, he wrote an amazing book oh, on so isolation. Nice. Well, it was a labor of love, and it was really, a, in many ways, personally motivated as well, because I as myself have struggled a lot with loneliness over the years as a child in particular. Are you an only during, child? I'm not, actually. I have a, a wonderful sister who's a year older to me, and I never felt lonely at home. This is important. I, my parents loved me unconditionally, and my sister did, and I knew that, which was a saving grace for me. But when I left home and went to school, that's when things broke down for me because I was very shy. I was introverted as well. It was hard for me to make friends, even though I wanted to. And so I would go to school each day. And the day, you know what time I dreaded the most in school, Martha? It was lunchtime. Walking into the cafeteria and not knowing afraid? if there oh. was somebody to sit next to or not oh. before I'd be alone. And in, it's, it's funny. In recent years, I've talked to some of my friends from elementary school. And I've told them a little bit about how I was feeling. And all of them said, oh, wow, I felt the same way, but I thought I was the only one. Mm. It turns out many of us were struggling with loneliness, but we thought we were the only one. And that turns out to be the case for many people during adulthood as well. So that's why, for me, there was a big personal motivation to write this. Because not only had I been affected by personally, had I taken care of many patients over the years who struggled with loneliness. But when I was surgeon general the first time around and traveled the country, I encountered so many people, students, retired folks, younger parents who were all saying to me that they felt invisible. They felt if they disappeared tomorrow, no one would care. Mm. And they felt profoundly alone. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags, and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Well, you wrote that your advisory, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation, 
the beginning of this year in 2023. That's right. And how, how do people get this? So you can find this just on our website, surgeongeneral.gov, and that'll take you to our, our priorities. And this is one of our key ones, uh, loneliness and isolation. And in it, what we laid out was both the, the extent of the problem, you know, noting in particular that one in two adults are struggling with loneliness and even more uh, kids are and young adults. But we also laid out what we can do about it as individuals, uh, as organizations, schools and workplaces, as neighborhoods and as, as government. So my, my hope, even though loneliness itself is a profound challenge, I wanted people to understand why it's so important for us to address. Because this isn't just one more health issue in the long list of health issues for the country to deal with. But what we realize is that when people struggle with loneliness and isolation, when they're disconnected, their chances and risk of depression, anxiety, and suicide all go up. But their risk of physical illness goes up too. They have a 29% increase in the rate of a risk of heart disease, 31% increase in the risk of stroke, 50% increase in the risk of dementia really? among older people. And the risk of premature death goes up as well. Hmm. We actually noted also that the, the mortality impact, Martha, that you see with, with being disconnected from others is similar to the mortality impact we see with smoking daily. It's even greater than the mortality impact we see with obesity. And So it are, is an epidemic. It truly is. And, and this is one of the reasons I wanted people to know that loneliness is more than a bad feeling. It's a public health concern that we've got to take seriously. And the good news is we can do a lot about it. You know, we don't have to wait for Congress to pass a law, you know, to address loneliness. There are things we can do in our day-to-day lives to help strengthen connection and rebuild our relationships. So you have to get that message out. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And how are you doing that? So you were doing it through a lot of podcasts like this, through going to events and talking to people, to visiting communities across the country. But we're also next week, actually, or actually in just a few days, we're going to be launching a college campus tour as well, where we're okay. going to universities around the country to talk about uh, the loneliness crisis, but also to talk optimistically about how we can come together to now rebuild social connection. And this is a place, Martha, where I actually think that even though young people are struggling the most with loneliness and isolation, I really think that a movement of young people to, to rebuild connection can help lead our country forward uh, in shifting how we engage with one another in rebuilding and knitting back into our culture the importance of relationships. You know, I think, Martha, I think the reason we became lonely is not because one day we decided relationships weren't important. I don't think that happened. I think we've always known at some deeper level that our relationships are important. But I think what happened is that we just allowed our relationships to drift away as technology came in and, and our time got sort of occupied with work and other things. Um, we allowed more and more things to reduce the time that we spent in person with one another. And as people fell lower and lower on our priority list, we became lonelier, but we thought we were the only ones. Part of my goal in this advisory is for people to realize if you're struggling with loneliness and isolation, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not the only one. Many of us are. And that's why it's important for us to talk about it and to start addressing it. Yeah. When, when the computer became a, a common tool, mm-hmm. I remember saying to everybody, oh my gosh, this is the best thing uh-huh. because it's going to enable us to get our work done faster, to make time, to spend time with our families, to let us go on more vacations, to, to really enjoy life a little bit more. How wrong I was, mm. you know, it really made, it, it was such a different result because yeah. what it did was become all consuming. Yeah. And that computer, that handheld, that you know, first it was the desktop, then it became the 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 tablet, then it became the iPhone, so important mm-hmm. to us. And we carry it around like the most treasured thing <laughs> with us all the time. It has to be charged, it has to be this, it has to be that. And uh, it really did take away a lot of free time. 
Because really as you say, kids don't go and play sports. They're rather looking at their phone. What are they looking at? They're looking at Instagram. They're looking at TikToks. They're looking at inanity sometimes, right? They and, are. And, and the truth is, like, I, I don't entirely blame kids for this because some people say, no, hey. you can't. You, know, you can't blame the yeah, kid. Yeah, I think what's happened is the environment has changed around them. And many of these devices, as you know, Martha, the devices themselves and social media in particular have been designed to capture all of our attention. Oh, yes. And to maximize how much time we spend on it. Like what I care about when I think about my kids, and I care about a lot of this first and foremost as a parent of a five and seven-year-old. Uh, thankfully, they're not on social media or tech yet, but that day is coming and I know it. But you know, we think a lot of times when our kids are, are on these devices about the fact that we want them to spend their time well. We care about time well spent, not quantity of time exactly. spent as much, but they're designed to maximize quantity of time spent. And that's what I worry about. And it's one of the reasons why in the advisory, one of the things I called for government to do is to put real safety standards in place that are actually enforced, that have teeth, so that when parents are introducing their kids to social media, they understand that, they're, that it has been vetted, that safety measures have been put in place that are adequate. Many companies will say now that they put safety measures in place. But what I care about as a parent is, are they enough? Are they working to keep my child safe? Or are they manipulating my child to spend more and more time on them, exposing them to harmful content, exposing them to harassment from others? And unfortunately, that is the common experience that many kids are going through today. It's just not right, but it's also fixable, but it has to be addressed with urgency. Well, do you have a, do you have a rule of thumb for when children should get their iPhone? That's a great question. So here's how, how I think about it. The challenge with getting a phone today is that it comes with a whole bunch of other stuff. Many parents get a phone for safety reasons, whether child to be able to call in case of an emergency, mm-hmm. right? But with that, you're buying access to the internet more broadly, to social media in particular. So here's how I think about it. I, for my own kids, my plan is to delay the use of social media until past middle school, and then to reevaluate when they're in high school based on whether there are safety standards in place, based on what the data says at that time about their safety, and based on their maturity. Now, I know that's not gonna be easy, because there's a lot of peer pressure to get on your devices and on social early. So uh, my wife and I are planning to partner with as many other parents as we can in this, knowing that there's strength in numbers and our kids and won't be the only kids who are delaying use. But for safety purposes, there are more and more parents who are getting their kids uh, what people, some people call dumb phones, right? Which are phones that don't necessarily have all the bells and whistles in terms of social media access, but they can make phone calls, they can text. In a case of an emergency, you can reach your parent if you're a child and vice versa. But no no access to the other stuff. Exactly. Huh. And I think that's actually very, very an appropriate so uh, middle ground dumb to strike. Phones? I, don't, I didn't even know about <laughs> dumb phones. Look, I know there's a lot of pressure here. And this is one of those things where I, I think the thing that worries me as a parent, Martha, is I think we've put the entire burden of managing all of this, technology and social media in particular, on the shoulders of parents. And we've said, good luck. Yeah. And we just walked away as a society. And I just think that that is, is wrong. You know, the vast majority Without of parents- Without offering the guidance that they really need. Right? Yeah, and the support. Like, you know, when, when I was old enough to drive, my parents didn't need to go and check the braking system on every car, investigate mm-hmm. the transmission, test out the frame with hammers themselves right. to make sure it was strong enough. There were safety standards in place so that they knew if they bought a car uh, that it you met those be, safety you standards. You would be safe, right. But parents should be able to expect the same thing from the technology that their kids use. That's a very good point. I don't know if you know this, but at Mount Sinai, we have the Martha Stewart Center for Living. And uh, we've long focused on the impact of isolation and with older people. I mean, it's been, especially in a, a cityscape like New York, 
the loneliness. Is it more prevalent in a crowded city or less prevalent loneliness? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it honestly depends on the culture of the city. I think when you have a city where people are, look, people have said this to me about New York City, while there, I think the Department of Public Health here has recognized loneliness as a problem. They're trying to build tools, you know, for people to engage more with one another, hotlines for people to call who are in crisis. The truth is you've got a lot of people together, but a lot of times they're not paying attention to each other, right? They're walking, they're, we're on our phones even when we're walking down the streets, right? So when we're in cafes, we're doing our own thing. We're just not, when we're on the subway, you know, we're catching up on emails, looking at social on the phone. We're passing by each other, but we're not engaging with one another. And uh, and I think that can lead the people to a profound sense of loneliness. Um, you know, in rural areas, I think the challenge of isolation is real. You know, and a lot of times you, you may have a lot less interaction. But one of the things that we have realized is what matters, Martha, is the quality and not the quantity of your connections. If you have two or three people in your life who know you, who you can go to during a crisis, who you can show up for during a crisis, that can be more invaluable to you than having 100 friends who are your contacts on social media, but who you don't really feel you can be yourself with, who you can't be vulnerable with. But the good news, I think, is that as huge as a problem is, it, it is small steps, actually, Martha, that can make a huge difference. Like what are those, in how what are those small steps? So here are some simple things I would offer to individuals. If you were to spend 15 minutes a day reaching out to someone that you cared about, it could be just to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I want to know how you're doing. It could be a phone call. It could be swinging by uh, their home if you live in the same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It could be a text to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. That can make a difference in how you feel. The second thing is if you take the time that you have with people, and actually give them the benefit and the blessing of your full attention by putting your device away during that short time you're with them, that can have the effect of stretching time. It can make 15 minutes feel like it's an hour. Start a bridge club, right? Yeah, and activities help a lot too, right? And so whether it's a bridge club, whether it's a volunteer activity, it turns out that when we serve other people, that's actually one of the most powerful antidotes to loneliness. And service doesn't always have to be volunteering an organization. It could be recognizing there's somebody at my workplace who's having a hard time and just offering to, to help them out or lending a listening ear. I want to touch base. That's great. Yeah, I want to touch base. And I worry about some of my friends. You know, yeah. I, I worry. I, they don't have to worry about me as much as I have to worry about them. Yeah. It's um, something that I, I take seriously. Well, I think it makes a big difference. I mean, I imagine if your friends, you know, ha- have a need and you're, you're reaching out to them, which it sounds like is what's happening, it really means a lot to them to know that you're thinking of them. Oh, yeah. And that- I think so. It's a tough challenge. I'm so happy that you're bringing it to the forefront. I think it's very important. Thank you. And I I hate that it's called an epidemic, but I can see why. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, Martha, it turns out we're not the only country also dealing with this. No, England is right now. I mean, I did did tell you my godson, uh, Augustine Booth Cliburn, Uh started a company with his partner who was a Saudi prince. Hmm. They started this company called Hello Tomo. Hmm. When he told me about it about five years ago, I said, what the heck are you doing? He said, he just had a call out of Cambridge and he's starting this company dealing. He says, there's so much loneliness in our country Hmm. and we're trying to make an app so that people can connect via our app, Hello Tomo. Hmm. And I, uh... He sold it for a lot of money to a much bigger company, very involved in loneliness epidemic mm-hmm. and isolation. And he's now working for that larger company. Mm. And But he said, he just wrote to me yesterday because I, I, I reached out and said, just tell me a little bit about what your job entails now. He said, you know, I'm in, ch- I'm in charge of reaching out around the world to other people who are working for this much larger company, but we're on Zoom. Mm. And he said, I'm not seeing these people in the flesh. 
and I'm I'm feeling isolated now. Mm. And they're trying to help all the other people around them, but they're on Zooms. Uh. And they're on, you know, and not seeing anybody. Yeah. He says it's like a it's like a, a nightmare for him that, that he's not talking to anybody in person. Do you know this company, Lyra? You have to yeah, look it up. You have to yeah. look it up and see what what exactly they're doing. But he's he was one of the new entrepreneurs, forty under forty in mm-hmm. in England. You know, for the yeah. Forbes thing, and it's so interesting to to see that that uh, that he's experiencing what he's trying to solve. And I'm really impressed that he recognized this as an issue more than five years you know, ago. Five? Oh yes. That's- you know, a lot, a lot of other workplaces are dealing with the same challenge of like how, especially after the pandemic, when so many people started working virtually. Okay, well, tell me about that because yeah. I I want to know what you think about a three day work week as mm-hmm. opposed to a five day work week. Mm-hmm. I mean, was it nineteen? In the, I think it was nineteen thirties when we became a five day a week mm-hmm. workplace mm-hmm. after six days, and no no pay was cut. The president did not cut pay, or uh-huh. but or somebody somebody didn't cut the pay. And I, I thought the five-day work week seems reasonable. And what do you think of this three-day work week that's that everybody's following now? Gosh, well, I hadn't heard about the three-day work week overall. What I have heard about is companies that are devising policies to bring people back for two or three days a week and then yeah, let two. them work virtually for a couple of days yeah. a week. And look, I, I think I recognize that people are trying to strike a balance. There's some families and individuals for whom having that flexibility to work virtually can be very powerful in terms of saving on commute times, being able to make it home to have dinner with your kids, you know, or pick them up from school. Like those are really valuable and powerful. Um, there's also, you have to balance that, I think, with sort of the cost of never being together, which creates its own loneliness. Well, in work. a creative company, it's very difficult. Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned creativity because one of the interesting things that one of my former business school professors studied and taught me was, um, was that when people struggle with loneliness and disconnection in the workplace, it actually negatively impacts their creativity, their sure engagement, their sure. retention, uh, as well as their overall productivity, and and that so that matters a lot. But you don't. It's hard to hard, much harder to forge those relationships when you don't at least have some in person time. Now, for some companies, that might mean being in person a couple of days a week. For others, it may be more or less frequently. But but this is where I think it's really important to recognize that there is a cost to being virtual, all virtual, all the time. Uh, you lose those connections, and those matter tremendously to our satisfaction and to our overall productivity. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The college tour sounds very good. Are you going to be going to your alma maters, Harvard and Yale? Um, no, unfortunately not on the college. This no. college tour will be starting actually at Duke uh, University okay. and then going to many other places from there. You, it'll be a chance for us to talk about the power of social connection. We're going to have actually, we've set up an experiential uh, sort of afternoon with, with the students where we'll be actually engaging with them in some actual uh, exercises to, through which they can build connection. We're actually putting forward a challenge to them as well with something we call our five for five challenge, which is we're asking them to take five days and, and each of those five days to reach out to someone and experience human connection and to do so uh, doing one of three things, either expressing gratitude to someone, lending support to someone, or asking for help. And it could be something as simple as calling a friend to say, hey, you know, that thing that you did for me last month when you helped me when I needed to move, that, that meant a lot to me. Thanks for doing that. Uh, it could be asking somebody, uh, you know, or lending support. If you had a, a friend who had a hard time, you know, they, let's say they broke up with someone recently and they were struggling, just calling them to say, hey, I'm just checking on you. I just want to know how you're doing. I know the last month was, has been pretty rough on you. But it could also be asking for help. This is something that is tough for us to do now. But calling someone, and even a good friend, to say, look, I am struggling. I'm having a hard time. Do you think you could help me out? Maybe could we hang out? Or, you know, I might need help, you know, doing this, you know, activity in my life. Can you come with me? That might be hard to do, but two things happen when you ask for help. One is you get help uh, more often than not. And people are more willing to help us than we realize. Studies show we, we often underestimate people's willingness to help us. But the other thing that happens when you ask for help is you tell the other person that it's okay to ask for help. They're probably somebody who might be struggling with thinking, huh, eh, I have a need. Is it okay for me to ask for help? So we can be examples, you know, in asking for help and make it easier for other people to do the same. But in these three ways, you know, again, expressing gratitude, lending support or asking for help, we're asking people to do this each day over the course of five days and then to let us know how they feel afterward, to tag, you know, three other friends and ask them to take that challenge. And by doing so, we're hoping to create the experience of connection and hopefully make this more part of people's day-to-day lives. I certainly hope your message of connection resonates. I really do. Thanks. Because I think uh, we need it so much. And uh, uh, it's very hard to believe that we are in in trouble like this culturally and politically at such odds with uh, so many other things, really. Previous Surgeon Generals have tackled smoking. Mm -hmm. They've tackled drinking. And so these awareness campaigns really have a a tremendous Mm -hmm. uh, impact, don't they? Well, I like to think they do. They're not the entire solution, but they can be catalysts for a lot of the actions that we need to solve well, these public health certainly. issues. Was that was that a, was the whole clampdown on smoking? Was that the Surgeon General? Yes. So yeah. in 1964, that was Surgeon General Luther Terry. I remember. Ooh. I remember that whole campaign. I was so happy because I hated <laughs> I hated smoking so much, <laughs> even though I had to learn how to smoke for a Tarryton commercial. Really? Yeah, I was when I was like 16, they made me learn how to smoke, inhale, to, and I had to blow smoke out of my mouth, you huh. know. Uh, and I thought, oh, God, this is the worst thing on, on earth. Yeah, that was important. And, th- you know, that was a multi-year campaign. But the smoking rates, Martha, in the United States at that time were around 42%. I know. It was horrible. It was terrible. And now, thankfully, we're 
under 13%. But not enough. Not enough, I mean, not but a lot enough. of progress. I mean, boy, there are, there's so many people smoking, you know, mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah. And what about drinking? Drinking, someone, a doctor just told me that in the on there's, there's this big list of dangerous things to mm. take into your body. Mm. And the most dangerous of all, of, out of 40 things, is alcohol. Yeah, so alcohol the is... The most dangerous, I mean, above heroin. Well, so I think a lot of this depends on on how you're using these uh, substances. The thing about alcohol is that you know, back in 2016, when I when I issued when I was searching all the first time, I issued a report on alcohol, drugs, and health. You did, yeah. And the alcohol was a part of it because I think many people had, I think, somehow erroneously felt that alcohol is just not a big deal because it's legal. It's not doesn't have any health risks associated with it. But you know, sadly, we have you know many people who are addicted to alcohol. Uh, we have many people who drink excessively, and alcohol leads to a significant amount of disease and death each year uh, in our country uh, and causes us a tremendous amount in terms of lives lost, but also in terms of uh, money spent on healthcare costs and economic productivity losses. In fact, when we detail the overall cost of addiction in the country, uh, the hundreds of millions of dollars, the majority of that actually was related to alcohol, really? not to other drugs. Mm-hmm. And so it's important for us to, to recognize that. I think many people also don't recognize that kids are still drinking, like underage. Uh, that continues, it was a problem when I was growing up. It continues to be a problem today. Thankfully, there's been some improvement there and based on recent data in terms of underage shrinking, that's a good thing. Um, but you know, we this is a place where we have to be vigilant. I, I worry that similar things happen with smoking. Many people think that smoking's not a problem anymore, but we solved that problem. It was only a problem 50 years ago. We still have millions of people who are struggling with smoking. We still lose nearly half a million people to tobacco-related disease wow. each year in the United States. And opioids? Uh, the opioid epidemic is, is, is deeply concerning because we are seeing continued increases uh, in the rate of overdose deaths. Oh, we are. Huh? We are. We've seen a, a, that number starting, that growth curve start to level off you know, over the past uh, year or two, but still at dangerously high levels. And one of the challenges, Martha, is people, when they thought about opioids, they used to think about heroin, they would think about oxycodone, the pills uh, that people were taking. Uh, but now increasingly what we're seeing is that there's an even more powerful uh, form of opioids called fentanyl, which is now poisoning the, the even I mean, more dangerous. bad poison. Yeah. Yes, the, the supply of opioids is such that many people don't even know they're taking products that contain fentanyl, but because it is so strong, it can overwhelm your respiratory system and lead people to stop breathing and ultimately can lead to death. And so that is a big part, fentanyl, of what is driving the opioid overdose crisis today. Well, COVID, can you talk about long COVID? What is that about? So long COVID is a, is a syndrome where people experience prolonged symptoms uh, long after their initial episode of COVID has resolved. And those symptoms could be shortness of breath, could be fatigue, uh, it could be uh, overall muscle aches and pains, it could be dizziness and vertigo. There's a whole host of symptoms. Oh that can go along with long COVID. President Biden actually directed uh, the administration of the Department of Health and Human Services to stand up uh, an initiative to understand more clearly what drives long COVID, what are the risk factors for it, and most importantly, how do we treat it? Mm-hmm. How do we address it? Is, so there, there a, is there a treatment? So right now there, there isn't a, a definitive cure, if you will, uh, for, for long COVID. It's a, lo- a lot of patients with long COVID end up uh, working with clinicians who try to manage some of their individual symptoms. But we need a more comprehensive understanding of how to diagnose you know, and treat and prevent uh, long COVID. The, the, the good news is that there's a lot now more attention and money going in to addressing that. 
Uh, the bad news is they can't come quickly enough because there are many people in the United States and around the world who are suffering with long COVID. I know many of them. I've had the chance to sit and talk with them and understand what it's like. It is debilitating for many of them. It's taken away their quality of life. And you can imagine that with that have come mental health strain and mental health challenges as well. Yeah, big challenge. What about obesity? Mm-hmm. Is that still considered a very um, serious disease here in the United States? Absolutely. Uh, our rates of obesity have unfortunately continued to go the wrong way. Uh, more than 40% of adults in America uh, are living with obesity. Uh, equally, if not more concerning, around 20% of our kids are now obese. This is a dramatic change wow, uh, from over the last 20 years. Yes. Uh, and we're talking about obesity. Um, there are even a greater number who are actually uh, obese or overweight, right? So what we reason we get so concerned about obesity is because it puts people at risk for high blood pressure, for other forms of heart disease, for diabetes. And then there are other concerns as, as well. With obesity, uh, you imagine your body is carrying a lot of weight that puts more strain on your joints. You think about the development of arthritis you know, and other musculoskeletal conditions, which can impact your quality of life. So these are profound challenges, and I worry that part of what is driving them is that we are, is our food environment has changed dramatically uh, over the last half century. Uh, we have much more highly processed foods and foods with high levels of refined sugars, which we know contribute to the obesity epidemic. So as a doctor, hmm. what advice do you wish we would all hear? There are a few basic pillars which if we focus on can give us a, a good shot at living a healthy life. One of those pillars is around sleep. Getting seven to nine hours of sleep a night really matters for your health, physical and mental. The second is around our physical activity. Just being able to, even if you don't have time to go to the gym every day and work out, just walking, uh, making sure that you're walking whenever you can uh, to stay physically active, that matters. Uh, the third has to do with your nutrition. Uh, we all probably could do more when it comes to drinking more water and eating more fruits and vegetables and reducing our intake of highly processed foods. And finally, there's our relationships, which are just as important as the other three. Uh, spending a little time each day connecting with people we love and care about, reaching out to friends, being there to support coworkers, that can go a long way toward making us uh, feel like we have a true social network and a social safety net, which all of us need, whether we say it or not, but not all of us have. Well, thank you so much. This has been such an interesting conversation for me and I know for all of our listeners. Dr. Murthy, um, you are fantastic. And all of you out there can listen to House Calls with Dr. Vivek Murthy whenever you listen to podcasts. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank so, you so much, very Martha. much. And good luck on the college tour. Thank you. I'm very excited. You might about enroll it. now for is there any other degree that you could possibly get? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm all tapped out when it comes you to are. degrees. So <laughs> well, good luck. And thank, thank you. you so much. And you're doing a great job for the United States and all of us here in the United States and elsewhere. I thank so you. appreciate that, Martha. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thanks thank so you. much. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. 
Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.